Hello, it's Jamie here, and welcome back to Bloody Bites. Today it's a bit of blue sky thinking because I'm going to concentrate on spy plane, the view from above, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. And we all hear about spy planes. They've always been in the news. They've always dominated the headlines at times of crisis. And you can think to the modern era. I mean, in February 2023, we had the crisis over Chinese surveillance balloons hovering over the United States. Back in September 2022, you had a Royal Air Force RC-135W joint rivet intelligence gathering aircraft being buzzed by Sukhoi Su-27s, the Russian Air Force, and an apparent malfunction of a Russian air-to-air missile that could have downed that aircraft. Going back further in time, you had the terrible crisis of May 1960, when Gary Powers, the U-2 pilot, was shot down over Smolenskaya in the Soviet Union. Uh, Apparently, it took 14 SA-2 guideline surface-to-air missiles to bring him down. One eventually hit him. Another hit a Russian uh, MiG-19 fighter aircraft. So nothing changes, and the Russians are still performing blue-on-blue accidents today with their surface-to-air missiles. Then in 1962, you had the U-2 pilot Rudolf Anderson shot down and killed over Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and he died on October the 27th, 1962. So all the way through history, you've had spy planes making the occasional appearance in the headlines. Even today, you have the Chinese complaining about P-8 Poseidon U.S. Navy patrol aircraft flying over the Taiwan Straits, claiming that's a provocation. So surveillance is all. And this is what it really comes down to, that knowledge is everything, elevation is all, and military commanders want to gain an insight into what the enemy is doing. It's always been the way. It's been ever thus. Uh, You know, to be able to gain height is to be able to see over the enemy lines, to see whether the enemy is massing or retreating, where the strong points are, where troop concentrations are, where artillery is located, where radar is positioned. So this has been critical. Go back in time. We're going to start really with ancient China, because this is where it so often starts. And with kites, because kites can be seen as the first reconnaissance aircraft of their age. Uh, Marco Polo mentioned it in the 13th century. You can go back in time to 200 BC in the Han Dynasty, when General Han Xin was using kites to gauge the distance to a besieged city. So he knew how far he had to build a tunnel, you know, to check distances. There there are rumours, there are legends of uh, humans being carried aloft in kites to scan the enemy. And certainly the Koreans were using it back in history. So there's no reason to believe the Chinese weren't as well. A sort of early hang glider, essentially. 
And kites were also being used to signal, to uh, carry messages, to drop propaganda, to spook the enemy with oil lamps and uh, bamboo whistles and sirens uh, so that the enemy thought there were celestial beings and ghosts at work. So spying and using kites for deception was really at the core of a lot of military thinking of that time. You move on and balloons started becoming important. And really from the 19th century, balloons were used in a, in a military capacity. You can go back to the siege of Paris when the Parisians launched 67 balloons, 55 of them carrying messages. Uh, some of them floated way. Of course, one ended up in Scandinavia. But these coal gas Balloons were, were critical. One of the advantages was that they weren't uh, hot air balloons, so they didn't use flame. So they were invisible at night. They couldn't be spotted. And so they could get over the Prussian lines uh, during that siege of 1870, 1871. And the French also used tethered balloons for observation. And this was really the beginning of that whole process of using balloons. You move forward to the Boer War, three years from 1899 to 1902, and there were the British uh, using 100 balloons out across the veld, you know, trying to scan, trying to map Boer lines. And they were extremely useful during the siege of Ladysmith and Mafeking because the Brits were very much bound by railway lines, didn't really want to cross country. They didn't know that land particularly well. So balloons were important. They could be used to send up observers who could then use either early photography or take sketches and, and add to the military knowledge down below. So balloons started coming into use. And, you know, the Royal Engineers had started uh, experimenting in the 1860s with balloon materials, what could contain hydrogen. And they came up what, with what was called uh, gold beater's skin. And that was really the intestines of cattle. And lo and behold, the Germans used those for putting hydrogen into their zeppelins in the First World War as well. So that gold beater skin became critical. That was the start of everything, you know, being able to encapsulate, contain hydrogen and allow balloons to travel over enemy positions or to observe from a tethered state. So this started coming into operation. And by the time you get to the First World War, balloons were still being used. You know, you had the Americans alone had 35 uh, balloon sections. And, you know, these were occasionally attacked by the Germans. The Germans had the prevailing wind against them. So didn't like coming across to Allied lines. It made their aircraft very slow and very vulnerable. And balloons, observation balloons, were always guarded by artillery and machine guns and by infantry. And so it was very dangerous, bloody work, trying to get in close to attack those balloon positions. The Royal Flying Corps of the Brits often sent missions across to attack German observation balloons. They were called sausage roasting missions. And again, it was very dangerous work, a bit like attacking trenches. You know, it was very vulnerable. But in terms of the parachute jumps from uh, allied 
observation balloons. It was, you know, fewer than 120 during the whole of the First World War. And, you know, there were probably fewer than 90 attacks on the American observation balloons uh, later on in the war as well. So, but they were extremely valuable. But by that stage, of course, aircraft were coming in for reconnaissance missions. And this is where reconnaissance literally took off. You had aircraft such as the Bristol Scout, the de Havilland DH-4 from the United States. You had the Albatross, the Germans. And so often these aircraft weren't armed. I mean, observation crews would sort of wave at each other as they passed between German and British lines. Then it started getting a bit more serious and people started taking pot shots with pistols, rifles, uh, even with flare guns. But, you know, it became critical, this, this need to know, for the commanders to know. Of course, the reports weren't always believed by commanders on the ground and there was a tendency to exaggerate or to misinterpret what was going on. In fact, there was one incident where a, a German commander was told by a reconnaissance crew that they had seen the British forces panicking and running about wildly and it turned out that the Brits were simply enjoying a football match. So <laughs> these things you know, had to be carefully interpreted. Over that period, it became increasingly important. And wireless was added, Morse keys were added. And so rather than just dropping the photographic load from the aircraft, it could be wired directly. And you can see this later on, of course, with reconnaissance satellites. You look at uh, US uh, corona reconnaissance satellites in the 1960s and they would physically dump their load of uh, photographic material from the satellite in a bucket drop um, from space, from low Earth orbit. And that was physically picked up. It was either picked up at sea or picked up from the ground. But this was happening. This, and then you started getting direct transmission. And this is what was happening with reconnaissance aircraft towards the end of the Great War in 1918. Then you got the interwar years and the Second World War. And this is where photo reconnaissance surveillance really started to become important. It's no accident that 80% of British intelligence during the Second World War came from photography. And the pioneer of this, the godfather of modern reconnaissance, was really Sidney, yes, like Sidney Smith, another great hero of mine, uh, Sidney Cotton. He was an Australian. He had been to Canada. Uh, having been in the Royal Navy, he went to Canada in the interwar years and pioneered topographical surveys using aircraft. And so in the 1930s, he had two Lockheed Model 12 aircraft with him. And posing as civilian aircraft, these Lockheed platforms flew around Africa, around Italy, over Germany, and took thousands of photographs. And they sent a slew of these photographs back to British intelligence for interpretation. And they were extremely useful in the pre-war years. 
In fact, a week before war was declared, there was Sidney Cotton uh, flying from Berlin, uh, still reconnoitring German positions. In fact, he made a habit of flying German officers over their own airfields to enjoy the view of their airfields and their aircraft. And there was Sidney Cotton just photographing them all the while with three cameras under the belly of his aircraft and further cameras in the wing that he could operate, oblique cameras and forward-looking cameras that he could operate from the cockpit. So that was really the beginning. Not to be outdone, the Germans too were using Heinkel HE-111s and Junkers JU-86s, uh, also in civilian markings, to fly around Europe, gaining intelligence. In fact, they flew them over the Soviet Union and, and flew 500 missions before one of their aircraft was, was brought down or crashed. And the Soviets learnt what the Germans were doing. So... Everyone was playing this game, and the Germans eventually, under Lieutenant Colonel Theodor Rovelt, expanded German photographic intelligence dramatically. And by the end of the war, towards the end of the war, they, of course, had the Arado uh, 234, the jet-powered aircraft, both a bomber and reconnaissance aircraft, that managed to get photographs over uh, the Normandy beaches. But if you have a jet aircraft flying at 456 miles an hour, you're essentially untouchable. But, but you know, this made up for the paucity in German aerial reconnaissance in the latter stages of the war because, of course, the Allies had air dominance and it made it much harder for the Germans to gain uh, any sort of photographic uh, reconnaissance during that period, during that latter period. The British, though, were going from strength to strength. You know, they developed the photo reconnaissance unit. They ended up using mosquitoes. They used Spitfire Mark 11s and Mark 19s. Incredible aircraft that could fly, you know, 30,000, 40,000 feet. It was always said that their cameras uh, were more valuable than the pilots and were, were warmed on the flights, whereas the pilots were absolutely frozen. All this information fed back to Danefield House at RAF Medmanham, and it became the centre of photographic interpretation. The Brits had the advantage of having the stereoscope, the, the lenses that allowed the flat image, a one-dimensional, two-dimensional image, to be turned into three dimensions. And this is really how the German secret rocket development site at Peenemunde was discovered because a 14-metre-high uh, V2 rocket was spotted and this turned into Operation Crossbow, this, this huge Allied effort to try and locate, pinpoint, not only the development of the V2 rocket of Pinamunda and the V1, but also where all the launch sites were. And it was an enormous campaign uh, and a lot of resources went into it. And it's worth mentioning that by the end of the war, 36 million photographs had been assessed at Danefield House, at RAF Medmanham. And, you know, it made a vast contribution to the war. And of all the intelligence-gathering assets in the Second World War that the Brits developed, that the Brits really pushed forward, you, you can see that there was Danefield House and the Central Interpretation Unit, there was Bletchley Park, and there was MI6, 
at 50 Broadway off Victoria Street in London. Those were the, really the three struts of the British intelligence effort during the Second World War. But photographic interpretation was key to it. The US also developed their capabilities. They were way behind at the start. You know, at the beginning with Pearl Harbor, they had really very little photographic interpretation. And one of the reasons was, of course, America's isolationist policy. You know, they didn't think the war would come to them. And of course it did. So they had to expand things rapidly. And by the end of the war, they had adapted B-29 super fortresses flying over Tokyo and mapping uh, the whole of Japan, really, for target acquisition. And this is really what photographic reconnaissance and intelligence gathering is all about from the air. It's really locating the vulnerabilities of the enemy. Come the end of the Second World War, we then get into the Cold War. And the need for photo reconnaissance, the need for intelligence became ever greater. And so you had that combination of spy assets of aircraft and satellites and often they sort of worked together and they complemented each other and the cold war really saw the beginning of those two great u.s spy planes you have the appearance of the u-2 which was a phenomenal aircraft, 30 still used today by the US Air Force, the Dragon Lady, uh, so-called because it was such a bitch to fly, basically, and land. Very, very difficult for the pilots. But here you have an asset that could fly at 70,000 feet uh, called Coffin Corner, where the stall speed and the, and the maximum speed were very close and where any accident could lead to a terrible disaster. Disaster. But the fact they're still used today shows their flexibility. You know, not only are they photographic reconnaissance, they also have a signals intelligence role as well. And they are deployed all around the world. You then get the SR-71 Blackbird. Here you had a Mac 3 asset, you know, never equaled or beaten during the entire period of the Cold War. You know, a phenomenal aircraft. And you can see the value of the SR-71 Blackbird during Operation El Dorado Canyon in 1986, when a Blackbird flew over Libya to see the damage caused by the F-111s from Lakenheath uh, that have flown all the way down to hit uh, terrorist targets and other military targets in Libya. Uh, I had actually been at Lake and Heath a couple of weeks before that, so it was, uh, it was amazing to see those aircraft fly. But the speed, the ability of the SR-71 was extraordinary. Uh, you know, it went at full throttle across Libya, and even when the pilot... Um, throttled back, even when he, he idled the throttle over Sicily, the aircraft overshot and ended up over Gibraltar. It was going uh, at one mile every 1.6 seconds. So a, an amazing capability. And, and that was the Cold War for you. I mean, that was the, uh, you know, the center of operations, the key to reconnaissance operations, both tactical and strategic during that period. Of course, there were sort of piston-engined aircraft like the uh, OV-10 Bronco during that period of the Vietnam War that were very useful. And that 
sort of brings me, I suppose, to the the the, the less high profile, the, the sort of uh, low observability end of the surveillance aircraft platform, because it, it seems so mundane, it seems so commonplace. But the Beechcraft King Air, the, this twin turboprop aircraft that has been used around the world has been critical to operations by Mossad, by the CIA, by UK intelligence uh, for many years. You know, you look at the Royal Air Force, they operate six Shadow R1 Beechcraft King Airs with electro-optics and very high precision observation kit uh, satellite communications, often used in conjunction with special forces operations. That fleet is growing to eight. The US Air Force has fundamentally modernized its Beechcraft King Airs. The 100 Squadron of the Israeli Air Force, the oldest uh, squadron is in Israeli Air Force service, has been operating since just after the Second World War. Uh, they use Beechcraft King Air. And they use them in conjunction with drones as well. They're called the Flying Camels. In 2014, in their operation against Gaza, the Israeli Air Force again used 100 Squadron with their Beechcraft King Airs to identify targets, to do damage assessment, to spot where launch ramps for Palestinian rockets were, uh, Hamas hiding places, you name it. And those Beechcraft King Air are still flying over southern Lebanon to spot Hezbollah hiding places and rocket launching sites. They're flying over uh, Syria. They do amazing things. So around the world, these Beechcraft King Air can land on unprepared airstrips, can operate in rugged conditions, and they're extremely useful and they don't need the kind of support that all those high-end aircraft need. So that's really the high end and the low end of reconnaissance assets. And it leads us really on to the postscript because we've talked about drones in, in two podcasts now, but it's drones that are really coming in to take the place on so many occasions of reconnaissance aircraft. We've seen the vulnerability of some reconnaissance aircraft. Yes, they are still required. Yes, they're still still being developed. You know, the RC-135 uh, rivet joint is used by the Royal Air Force and by the US Air Force in much greater numbers in the US, of course. And they are critical for soaking up intelligence around the world. There are 30 operators on board. They can pick up radar signals, communications, you name it. And they fly everywhere where there's a conflict zone to find out what's going on. But as you saw in that incident, in September 2022, with an RAF rivet joint, you know, they can be vulnerable and it can lead to a diplomatic or military incident or a great tragedy. Back in 2001, you had an EP3 US Navy uh, intelligence aircraft being hit by a Chinese J 8 fighter and being forced down onto Hainan Island. 
where the crew were detained for 10 or 11 days. The Chinese went over it with a fine tooth comb and, you know, they would have gained a great deal of intelligence going through that aircraft, although you can bet the crew were trying to burn microcircuits and circuit boards and uh, had burn bags operating on board the aircraft before it landed. But these are instances that can happen. So it's often better to have a drone involved. And, of course, you saw an MQ-9 Reaper drone being forced down by the Russian Air Force only recently uh, over the Black Sea. So, you know, drones uh, are really moving in. So with the postscript, it's worth looking at how drones and aircraft reconnaissance assets are going to combine and cooperate in the years ahead. And so you have... Uh, programs such as the Skyborg program uh, set up by the US Air Force Laboratory that is trying to create this idea of cooperation and complementary actions between drones, unmanned air vehicles and aircraft, of having wingmen that manned aircraft can send off to do the dirty work, to, to, to fly over vulnerable areas or hostile areas. You know, you also get the US DARPA, Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency, with their Gremlins programme, and that's an amazingly ambitious program, again involving uh, assets, platforms that are manned, uh, cooperating with those that are unmanned so and retrieving them. So you have gremlin drones coming back on board the mothership, you know, locating themselves back onto pods beneath the wings or actually coming back on board the aircraft. So these are all programs that are happening. And you add to that artificial intelligence. So you get a situation where data is fused. You know, the information comes together. AI helps analyze it and commanders have the options set up before them. And Ukraine is really pointing the way in terms of data fusion and using drones. So you're going to start getting, you know, high value uh, reusable drones and also disposable drones being used across the battlefield. But it is important and will continue to be important to have humans in the loop. And that's why the future for, for manned aircraft, for, for crewed aircraft, such as the Rivet Joint, such as the E-7 Wedgetail, airborne early warning aircraft, you know, the, the need for those still exist. But I certainly don't think we've seen the end of high-profile political incidents involving spy planes, because wherever there is tension, wherever there is conflict, you will get a spy plane trying to maintain a view from above. Thanks, and catch up next time on Bloody Bites. So it goes. His name is James Jackson. My name is Tom Ashton. You've been listening to Bloody Bites from Bloody Violent History. Please pass this podcast on to a friend. You can contact me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you, and good luck. Thank you.